Professor Spencer, it's a great pleasure to interview you today. You will be the 33rd entrant in the archive and the 20th faculty member to reminisce on your time at the University of Cambridge. Your career began in the post-war period, by which time the university had recovered from the shortages of staff and materials caused by the war, but during which it was coming to terms with the new national and world order. Deference in society was waning, and the colleges were opening up to women and those like yourself who were grammar school educated. It was also the time of the Cold War and international deadlock in many areas, while locally the country was readying itself for the entry into the common market, with all that entailed for politics and legal repositioning. I am sure that you will enliven our archive with your observations and your reminiscences of these times and the reforms of criminal law that our new European situation required, in particular with the introduction of the 1998 Human Rights Act. I'm also sure that the potential legal fallout from the 2016 Brexit referendum will not escape your forensic observations. For the record, we should recall that this is a COVID interview. The second such interview in the archive from which, from your part, Professor Spencer, is conducted online from the depths of rural Norfolk. So could we start with your early life and education, complete your university career in a second interview, and then conclude with a discussion of your published work? You were born immediately after World War II in 1946 in Chelmsford. That's right, yes. And uh, when I was four, we moved to North Dorset, where uh, my father had a job as a, a district surveyor for Dorset County Council in the Roads and Bridges Department. And there he stayed, and my mother stayed for the rest of their lives, and that's where I was brought up. Right. So... What would you say is one of the most important legacies of this rural upbringing? See, in a strange way, only really much to do with the countryside directly. Uh, I fell a victim to the polio epidemic in um, 1950, I think it was. My parents were convinced I was physically too weak to send to primary school when I was five. And I don't think they wanted me to go to the village primary school anyway, for other reasons. And they had me taught by an octogenarian clergyman who lived next door. And um, that went well. And he taught my sister as well. And the result was from five until 10, when we moved to a little town um, just about five miles away, I was educated together with my sister in this extraordinary fashion. Um, we didn't play with other children very much. I certainly didn't play any sport. Uh, by the time I went to primary school at 10, I had a reasonable knowledge of Latin and some French, um, but I was behind the others in mathematics, and I'm afraid that stuck with me for the rest of my time, and I was absolutely useless at sport, and that stayed me, with me for the rest of my life. But it was an eccentric beginning to my education, a quirky beginning, for sure. Very interesting. So when you went to Blandford Grammar School, were you a day boy or were you a boarder? 
Oh, it was it was just a day school for the surrounding rural area. Um, from Sturmiston Newton, where I then lived, we used to go by train to school every day, a steam train on a railway line, Somerset and Dorset joint railway line, as railway enthusiasts will know. And um, great corporate spirit with the Sturmiston Newtonians going up and down on that railway line every day. Okay. And uh, I often and often think of that and regret how sad it is that the railway is now closed. Yes. So overall, did you enjoy those school days? Yes, I did. It was um, a small country grammar school, um, but there were teachers who'd been there for years who were good. And I fell in with some other people in the sixth form who um, were interested in the world around us. And we talked and talked when I was in the sixth form. And I have people who are still my friends to this day who were people I got to know at the grammar school. Yes. It did very well by me. Um, there was a grant, there was an association of Landfordians, which continued to exist until earlier this year. And I was very sad when, with so many people dying, I was one of a, nearly the last wave of people who went to that school before it was closed down and became part of a comprehensive school. Um, I felt I'd lost something in my life when the association finally closed. Any subjects that you enjoyed particularly at school and that you were good at? History, French, Latin, um, English, I think. Um, I like the sciences too, but if you're not very good at mathematics, then you come to a brick wall in science subjects. So, uh, Professor Spencer, what made you decide to apply to go to come to Cambridge? There arrived at the school a headmaster who had himself um, gone to Cambridge from a grammar school um, and he was keen on encouraging those he thought had the ability to apply to Cambridge and it was him who stimulated me and a friend of mine in the class who also went there at the same time. And of course, um, this you applied to come to Selwyn College. When you arrived, were there still ecclesiastical trappings which had operating were still operating in the mid sixties? Well, it's amusing how I came to apply to Selwyn. David Harrison the, was the admissions tutor, Sir David Harrison, as he now is, who had his ninetieth birthday earlier this year and eventually became master of the college after a distinguished career in all sorts of parts of, of academic life. And the headmaster of the grammar school, Arthur Franklin, sent for me when I was think when he was thinking of applying for university, and he said, we've had this pamphlet from um, the senior tutor, uh, David Harrison at Selwyn College. Now, I don't remember much about Selwyn College, but I think it has something to do with the Church of England. And um, you, you've got short hair and you go to church, so why don't you apply to Selwyn? And that's why I applied to Selwyn. And that is story is as true as I sit here. And I was accepted by Selwyn. So I think it had a church reputation greater than how far the Church of England 
was the central part of it. Um, there was a chapel and a chapel choir, and I sang in that. And the the master of the college was Owen Chadwick, who of course was um, a Church of England clergyman. So and there, were, there was an active chapel and so on, but you didn't have to belong to the Church of England to go there anymore. And so when you arrived from Dorset, did you find it quite a change coming to Cambridge and to Selwyn? Was it to your liking initially? I never felt discriminated against or made feel small because I was a grammar school boy. There were a lot of grammar school boys at Selwyn College and David Harrison himself, if I remember rightly, was from a grammar school background. And um, I got on with colleagues there, with fellow students there from whatever background. I think I suffered from imposter syndrome, it's called, wondering how on earth I got there and whether I was good enough. But I think that's very usual for people who go to university, particularly Oxford or Cambridge. Um, I had a good time as an undergrad. I, I confess I didn't study all that hard. I was into music in those days and I wanted to play in Cums, the University Music Society Orchestra, and I played, there are two levels of it, or there were then, there was Cums 2, the second division, and Cums 1, and finally, in my third year, I managed to graduate into Cums 1, and I suppose when I wasn't studying, uh, music was what I was mainly doing. Right. So, in the 60s, there were several sit-ins um, uh, with the Garden House riot in 1970. Did any of these, did you experience any of these or did they affect your equilibrium at all? The Garden House riot was after I'd gone down and it was when I was in Canada. Um, there were preliminary rumblings and a degree of um, disgruntlement and left-wing activity. I think um, I prided myself on being a young fogey in those days. I, I made a transition over the years, I think, um, from being young fogey to old fart, or maybe an old Turk. But anyway, um, and to begin with, I, I didn't have much patience. It seemed to me I didn't have much patience with a, a lot of people who took an extreme left-wing position and sat in and wanted to tear everything to bits. I had a feeling Cambridge seemed to be filled with people from privileged backgrounds who were embarrassed about it and wanted to wreck it, and people from modest backgrounds who were very glad to have got there and rather wanted to keep it as it was, and I was part of that second group. That's very interesting. So when you came to Cambridge, did you come with the intention of reading law? Oh yes, I'd applied to read law. Um, from early on, my father was wondering what I could do for a living, and he was a civil engineer and um, his father had been an engineering draftsman and my mother's father was another highway engineer. And I think the tendency would have been if I'd been good at mathematics to push me in that direction. Um, but he had a friend who was a solicitor who said, would he like to come to the solicitor's office in school holidays and um, do various um bottom grade secretarial work for us and see what goes on and come around and see what I do. And I find that very interesting. And I was all lined up to go there as an articled clerk. 
And it was initially a question about whether I'd go there immediately and just study to become a solicitor or go to university first. But uh, the school said I should try to go to Cambridge. And of course, I applied to Cambridge to read law. And my whole idea all the way through was to go back and be a country solicitor. In Dorset. That's right. Yes. Yes. It never happened, did it? Yes. No. Very interesting. So um, at that time, as an undergraduate, but the old schools, do you, do you have any memories of this of the actual accommodation? Oh, very much. Yes, it was a, it was a bit crowded, um, and the lecture rooms were physically not very comfortable with bone hard seats and poor ventilation and uh, less than wonderful acoustics. And eventually the law, the university administration kept on getting bigger and gradually edging the law faculty out of the bits that it had. In compensation for a time, we had the East Room, a lovely, lovely room, um, part of the um, the range, the famous range of the old schools there. Um, and that was a much nicer room, but then it was hard to make yourself heard in it, so we had to strain to hear the lectures. Right. It was right next to the Squire Law Library, of course, and that was convenient. Um, yes, it, it, things changed later when eventually, uh, when I was first at Don, um, we were squeezed out yet further and we had to have lectures in different parts of the city, but we were all, all the lectures used to take place down in the old schools when I was an undergrad. So you may have been lectured by or certainly knew um, academics such as, for example, the Regis Professor of Civil Law at the time. Did you ever come across him, Professor Duff? Pa Patrick Duff, yes, yes. Um, Patrick Duff gave one or two of the lectures in Roman law, but I think he was just about to retire. And um, to everybody's astonishment, he used to come to lectures dressed not only in a gown as everybody did, but also with a mortarboard and would walk in with a mortarboard. And I remember um, we once took a photograph of him coming in with his mortarboard um, as this uh, archaic relic of how things used to be years before. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I don't have, I don't remember much about his lectures except that he gave them and okay. gave an impression of being a pleasant, gentle individual. The Rasball professor at the time was Professor Bailey. Yes. Well, Professor Bailey, um, I learnt later, suffered from early onset dementia. And he, well, there were already signs of that when he lectured to us. He um, was on the doddery side. Um, there was a time when we used to make jokes about old and doddery people, but now I'm 74 and on the verge of becoming old and doddery myself. They no longer seem funny, so I won't relate any anecdotes about his lectures. Right. Well, he was succeeded by Professor Glanville Williams. Um, who, when you first arrived, was a reader, and um, he, of course, has had a great influence on you. you. You wrote his obituary in The Independent in 97. You also wrote his entry in the DMB, 
several of the scholars in the archive whom I've had the privilege of interviewing have commented on his brilliance as well as his pacifism. And I wondered if you could summarize your views on this scholar with such wide ranging talents. Granville Williams was an astonishing man. Um, he was brilliantly intelligent and um, amazingly single-minded and persistent. Um, he was by nature a quiet sort of person and quietly spoken, but he never gave up. He was like Miss Marple solving a crime. And um, he was a he was ahead in seeing difficult legal problems and in pressing for solutions which people thought were completely um, ridiculous and far-fetched when he first put them forward. So, for example, tape recording of police interviews with suspects. I think he put that forward in the 1950s, long before I was at Cambridge. And everybody said, that's utterly ludicrous. How could they ever do that? And, of course, we have it. And everybody has it now. Um, he was... Personally, a little shy and seemed um, a rather austere individual. Um, but he had kindness and he gave a lot of encouragement to junior members of the faculty he thought were worth helping. And he'd read typescripts of things you'd written and he'd offer comments. Um, I suppose insofar as there is any consistent current of philosophy behind English law, English criminal law, and English law generally, you would say it's utilitarianism and probably goes back to Bentham and Bentham's predecessors. And Glanville Williams was, of course, um, a devoted follower of Jeremy Bentham. And I didn't know it at the time, but utilitarianism was um, at the back of so much of what he taught and it had a big influence on those people whom he did teach. I think he was on sabbatical leave or doing something else most of the year that I read criminal law in my first year at Cambridge and it was later on that I got to know him and um, when I started out as an assistant lecturer in the faculty, I didn't teach criminal law to begin with. And he it was who nudged me in that direction. He said, um, assistant lectureships in those days were temporary posts, time limited. And he said, we're going to need people in criminal law, somebody else in criminal law in the faculty. Um, I'm going to retire and um, there needs to be a succession of people. And if you want to make yourself useful in an area where um, your utility might be noticed, I advise you to get into criminal law. I'd always enjoyed criminal law and I didn't need much pushing from anybody to take it on. So he got me firmly into that area of work. The man who lectured to us in criminal law in our first year was J.C. Smith, John Smith, later Sir John Smith. And uh, he was seconded under some scheme or other from Nottingham University where he was. And he gave us our criminal law lectures. He was 
one of the best lecturers I've ever heard, a brilliant, clear, um, wryly amusing sometimes. And I could think back to his lectures and I can remember some of the things he said now. I got to know him slightly later on um, when I was editor of the when I was on the editorial board of the Criminal Law Review, he was part of it. We would meet every year. He was somebody who was personally a nice man and a helpful man as well. That is very interesting indeed. So another great, well, he was a comparative lawyer whom you may recall was um, Professor Hampson. And I wonder if you have any account or recollections of him. Yes, I do. Um, Professor Hampson lectured in contract and taught too, among other things. Um, I wasn't into um, comparative law then, and I didn't hear him lecture on that subject. He, he did part of the lecture course in contract and taught too, and he had um, um, a slightly wild lecturing style, and I have a suspicion he didn't prepare his lectures too thoroughly, and they always ran up to the hour, if not a minute beyond, and of course you need to get out of the lecture and into the next one. We couldn't always follow what he said, but he was sort of bursting with energy and enthusiasm. Um, later on, um, he very much helped me he didn't really know me at that point, when he liked and accepted a, an article that I'd written for the um, Cambridge Law Journal, of which he was the editor for a long time. And um, I think his liking that article and publishing it, which was a key stroke of luck in my academic career. So um, I've, um, I have meant reasons to be personally grateful to the memory of Jack Hansen, as I likewise do to the continued presence of David Harrison, because the help he gave was obviously an important step in my career. Um, he was quite an imperious character, Jack Hansen. Um, I know he used to, he organized the um, a foreign, summer foreign lawyers course year after year after year, which then Roderick Mundy took over later on. And um, Part of this involved a, a coach trip down to the Courts of Justice in London. And I remember Jack Hampson um, met me somewhere in the corridors in the old schools when I was a very junior lecturer. And he said, you will come with us on the coach to London. So there I was as a marshal to take part in this. <laughs> he was a man. And of course, you know, I wouldn't have dared. No member of the faculty would have dared to say no. But... Uh, he was a, a forbidding, forbidding figure, but I see somebody I was grateful to. Thank you. Uh, did you have much or anything to do with the then Ewell professor who would have been Robbie Jennings? Uh, I remember his lectures and uh, we liked him as a lecturer. Later on, I knew him slightly um, through the faculty and I remember uh, met him from time to time over the years and thought he was a nice, kindly man. Um, but it, public international law was never my thing, really, so I didn't have a lot to do with him. 
So um, closer to your age when you arrived would have been academics like or um, junior assistant lecturers such as Gareth Jones, um, a few others. Do you, did you have any much to do with Gareth Jones at all? I don't think he'd been don't think he'd been a lecturer long when I arrived, and um, I can remember him lecturing us about um, constructive trusts in our third year. Um, it was later that I got to know Gareth Jones very well because um, he became chairman of the faculty in the um, what early eighties, I suppose, and I was faculty secretary. And I was faculty secretary with him for three years and we got to know each other very well and he became a close friend and his wife Viv was a great friend of both of ours. So somebody um, I got to like and love, yes. Thank you. Someone else who was with you at that time would have been Paul O'Higgins. Um, Again, I was conscious of him, and I think I heard him lecture at some point, but um, and apart from being aware of him and knowing who he was and finding him friendly when I met him, I don't have any memory of him. Colin Turpin? Oh, certainly. Colin Turpin. Colin Turpin lectured to us in constitutional law um, with great clarity. Um, slightly stiffly, um, but memorably, and if I look back on the people that I heard lecture and think of things that they said, some things that he said in the course of lectures still stick in my mind after many years. And then we were college in the faculty later, and he went on supervising for a long, long time, I should think till at least 80. And um, our student, he supervised Selwyn students in constitutional law, and he was popular as a, as a supervisor. He never seemed to tired of inspiring the young to enthusiasm about the things he was concerned about. Tony Weir? I think Tony Weir arrived on the scene uh, when I was an undergrad. And it was a stupendously funny and incisive lecturer. And um, sometimes didn't seem to have an altogether clear thread through them, but they were always full of memorable things that he said. And um, he lectured us on Roman law. And I can remember some of the things he said in connection with that. And I think he lectured in some aspect of English legal system, and he said some memorable things about that. He had a great way of saying something incisive in a very memorable way. And um, I suppose we thought he was slightly intimidating when we were undergrads, but again, he was somebody I got to know later, and uh, he was a kind friend, and um, like I liked him very much. We both liked him very much. Ken Polak would have been around at that time? Yes, Ken Polak doubled up as bursar of King's College, if I remember, and that was a pretty busy job. And I think he did what he had to do in the faculty, 
but um, he wasn't hugely prominent in the faculty. Um, I think King's College was his main domain. Perhaps any memories of John Hopkins? Oh, yes, very much. John Hopkins supervised us. John Hopkins really was an excellent supervisor. Um, he did enormous hours of supervising. I can't think how he managed to tirelessly supervise hour after hour after hour as he did. Um, and again, he was somebody who had, he had a gift of um, expressing, see, explaining his way through some com apparently complicated legal topic, putting it in a simple fashion so that you'd remember it. So he was highly gifted as a supervisor, certainly. He was, um, as a lecturer, he was also good. He went at high speed. We used to call him Machine Gun Hopkins, I remember. <laughs> and then, of course, he was a colleague in the faculty for years and years and years, and um, I knew him well and got on with him then, yes. Cherry Hopkins? Uh, yes. Um, I don't remember her. She was obviously on the scene when we were uh, undergraduates, I, but she didn't teach me then. I got to know her later and through the Cambridge Law Journal mainly. She was a case note editor for a long time, I think. John involved in case note editing. I think she might have been a case note editor, I forget. Sorry. Thank you. So John Collier would have been around at that point. Oh, yes. Um, John Collier supervised us. John Collier also lectured us. And um, then he was a faculty colleague later. Yes, I I remember him with affection as well, yes. And then you mentioned uh, in your note, or very helpful notes that you sent me, Professor Spencer, Paul Fairest. Paul Fairest was a key person in my life because he was, he just arrived, he just arrived at Selwyn College and I applied and um, he admitted me, it was he and David Harrison who decided to admit me to read law. And I and the contemporaries in that year were the first year of people whom he had admitted. So he was new and he was keen and he was enthusiastic and we very much liked him. And he was somebody who took great efforts on our, on all, all of our behalf. And again, he was an excellent lecturer and he was an excellent supervisor as well. And um, later on, he it was who heard about and encouraged me to apply for the one year temporary post in the Faculty of Commerce and Business Administration at the University of British Columbia. And um, persuaded me to take it. And I went, and that was the turning point, really. That's what stopped me finally becoming a country solicitor and set me on the road for being an academic. Um, Paul moved on from Cambridge in the mid-1970s and went to Hull, where he was a professor and where he worked for the rest of his days. So he rather disappeared, disappeared from the Cambridge scene, but we remained in touch and he was a personal friend and somebody um, I owe a great deal to.
Thank you. Did you have anything to do with, or do you have any recollections of a somewhat enigmatic character, Professor Clive Perry? Oh, yes. Uh, Professor, um, in, uh, in one of the eulogies for John Hopkins, who was a pupil of Clive Parry. Somebody described Clive Parry as mercurial, and yes, he was. Um, he he was extremely clever. Um, he could be very funny, and very incisive, and um, I can remember now some of the funny things that he said. He could also be extremely difficult. And um, when I became a member of the faculty board, I saw some of the disruptive side of him in action. And um, he could be take a malicious delight in making trouble sometimes. But as far as I'm concerned, um, I regard him as one of my benefactors. He was one of the power men in the faculty when I started out, and he was certainly kindly disposed towards me and was always friendly to me. But yes, he was somebody else who could see his way through a problem. And something that I think of now that he told us about when he was lecturing about extradition. And he said some somebody's just sent him very kindly a three-volume book on the law of extradition that they'd written. And he said, I, I, uh, I asked him, do you know how many extraditions this country actually has each year? And he said, no, I don't. And he said, I'll tell you, I had better figure, it was 17. And you know what really happens, don't you? Our police officers ring up somebody in the other country and say, do us a good turn, would you? Just put him on a plane back to Heathrow. And then, surprise, surprise, there's somebody from the Metropolitan Police waiting to arrest him at the other end. So he never bothered with extradition. And that actually was the position. And Clive Parry was irreverent enough to teach us what really happened. All that came to an end in the 1990s when the House of Lords condemned that and said it was an abusive process to prosecute somebody who'd been illegally exported by a collusive arrangement like that. Yes, he was undoubtedly one of the greats. Um, he died relatively young, I think. I think he was probably before he retired even in his what, mid sixties, I think. That's right. I think he was 65. Yes. Yes. He was a very good friend to my, whom I used to share a room with, Professor Lipstein, whom oh, he, yes. he was very, very uh, fond of him. Yes. And, yes. Uh, so well, they Lipstein. shared a house. Yes, that's right. Yes, Kurt Lipstein. And he seemed to have been there forever and he seemed to stay there forever. And um, Kurt Lipstein was an endlessly obliging, friendly man and very learned. And he lectured to us at one stage in the LLB, as it then was, I seem to remember. Um, 
And uh, yes, a really very nice and learned and kind man. Um, and interestingly, he um, had the habit of going up to people whom he saw lost in the Squire Law Library, particularly if they were attractive women, and saying, can I help you? And I had working with me one summer an Italian PhD student. Um, this would have been in the mid-2000s, I suppose, when Kurt Lipstein was about 94 or 95, and I told her this story. And then she said, it's happened. I was up on the top, and he came up to me and he said, can I help you? <laughs> and he was able to show me where the book was that I wanted. And somebody later told me that um, this happened once, and, and the student at Concern thought that he was a library assistant, rather an elderly one, and thereafter was always seeking him out to find books for her. <laughs> Oh my God. Well, I'm very fortunate to have interviewed Kurt for the archive mm. and um, some other scholars that are in the archive include uh, Mickey Dias. Yes. Mickey Dias supervised us um, with clarity and rigour in Roman Law 2, I think it was. He lectured us, um, lectured us in um, negligence in English and Roman law, I think it was, in the LLB. Excellent, excellent lecturer. Um, slightly bizarre experience going to his supervisions, because if I remember rightly, there was a human skull on his desk, which um, was a little off-putting. Um, <laughs> I then worked with him years later because he was the general editor of Clark and Lindsay Long Taught, and for a number of years I, under his direction, edited um, an increasing number of chapters in the book. And he was, yes, he was friendly, and um, I have kind memories of him as well, yes. The, that very skull was present when I interviewed him at his home in Babraham Road yes. on the table. I can't imagine how he came by it or yeah. why he had it there. But uh, <laughs> um, someone else I've, I've been very lucky to interview was Michael Pritchard. Yes. And um, of course, he's almost ninety-three now. Mm. And uh, I was very pleased, very impressed to notice that he'd actually attended the, the annual faculty meeting last week. Ah, right. <laughs> by teams. Yes. Michael Pritchard um, lectured to us as undergrads. He was an excellent lecturer. He lectured in land law. And I remember my father uh, came to see us in Cambridge, came to pay, pay me a visit when I was an undergrad. And I was reading land law at the time. And I smuggled my father into the lecture. I'm touching. To go and hear what a Cambridge lecture was like. And um, I don't think my father was particularly interested in land law, but nevertheless, he saw Michael Pritchard in action. Yes. And then um, 
again, Michael, of course, was teaching in a faculty for years and years when um, I was a junior lecturer and then further up. And he edited the Cambridge Law Journal and um, he edited it when I submitted things to it. So I got to know him fairly well. Yes, he was a, a much respected um, member of the faculty and much, much liked, yes. He's a great fund of knowledge about the faculty. Oh, I mean, everything, a huge fund about every aspect of legal history. And if you wanted to lead on something, I imagine still um, ask Michael and he will point you in the right direction. He worked for many years with uh, David Yale on the Admiralty Project. Uh, yes. Do you remember David Yale from those days? Yes, I do. Um, David Yale lectured to us in, gosh, taught. It, he lectured in um, private nuisance, I think. Um, and David Yale was a faculty chairman, I think, chairman of the, no, he's, we would have been on the faculty appointments committee when um, I was first appointed as an assistant lecturer, I think, yes. Um, but he retired a long, long time ago, and I was delighted to see the um, eminent scholars archive entry for him and read it with a lot of interest. Thank you. It, well, it was delightful interviewing him. I mean, in his 90s, he mm -hmm. too is very clear, think, a very clear thinker still. It was a great, um, really, a, well, I didn't know what would ensue, obviously, but it yes. was very, very worthwhile. I'm thrilled with that interview. Thank you. Professor Jolovitz, or Tony Jolovitz, that he would have been at the time, is yes. someone you would have known. Oh, yes. Tony Jolovitz supervised us in contract and talked to. Um, No nonsense, bursting with energy somehow, and um, you tried hard if you were preparing for his supervisions and writing essays. Um, he was, yes, firm but kindly, I think you'd say. Uh, he was a jolly good lecturer. Um, very forthright, and I, I won't insult his memory by imitating him and his lecture style. He was a, a good lecturer whom we liked, and then um, he, he was a, again a supportive faculty colleague. In fact, um, looking back on it, I have been lucky to have worked with so many supportive and friendly colleagues whom I respected. Poppy Jolovitz was a bit like him in terms of how she came across, very slightly fierce, but actually was very kindly behind it. Yes, yes. Well, Tony Jolovitz, if initially seemingly fierce, was a generous and kind and friendly man, yes. Poppy likewise. Lynn Seeley was, would have been here at that point in your career, Professor Spencer. Yes, um, Len Seeley was, when I first went back to Selwyn, I was notionally a research fellow, 
I think the reason was that if you were a research fellow, uh, what they paid you was notionally a grant and you didn't have to pay tax on it or something like that. And they paid me less in consequence. And I made a rather faint, rather faint and um, not very serious attempt to start a PhD with Len as my supervisor. Um, And he was kind and understanding. And I didn't progress much with it, but the um, thing that I, it wasn't all wasted time because it was work I started towards that, which I turned into the first article, which was published in the journal when Jack Hampson was editor, which was a step towards beginning academic life. Right. Would that have been your 1973 article? That's right, yes. Right, right, which we'll come to. Thank you. Um, In 1969, you took a temporary lectureship in the Faculty of Commerce and Business Administration, and I wondered whether this was the forerunner of the Judge Institute, which was set up in 1990. I'm sorry, I didn't catch that, Leslie. You, You took a temporary lectureship in the Faculty of Commerce and Business Administration. Yes. Was that what became the Judge Institute? No, no. It, it was, this was in British Columbia in Canada. Oh. And um, Canadian universities at that point were expanding and they were potentially overwhelmed with good Americans who wanted jobs there. And to counterbalance it, they were inclined to offer temporary posts to people from the United Kingdom. And if they liked them, invite them to stay longer. It was in that context. So I was in Vancouver in Canada for that year. And that was the uh, Faculty of Commerce and Business Administration there. Right. That sounds a, a very exciting experience. Oh, certainly, yes. And that's when I first lectured. Right. Uh, you within given a junior fellowship at Selwyn. This was in 1970. Yes. And I wondered what the circumstances were of this, what this entailed. The truth was that the law side was expanding and Paul Ferris needed help. And um, essentially, he caused the college to engineer the creation of a post for me to come back and help him. As I said, it was presented as a research fellowship. I didn't do a lot of research apart from writing that article, and I did a lot of teaching. Um, I hadn't entirely given up the idea of being a country solicitor, but I thought it would be a nice thing to do, and I got on well with Paul Ferris. We got on very warm, friendly, personal terms. So I um, went back to Selwyn and supervised and supervised um, and rather expected it all to end at the end of three years and then I'd have to go off and do something else for a living. But um, I was encouraged to apply for junior posts on the university payroll and I applied for an assistant lectureship post 
um, assistant leadership post when he became vacant and was unsuccessful the first time, but then successful the second time. That's when that would have been in 1973, I think. Right. So during your junior fellowship at Selwyn, uh, you published your first paper at the end of this period. Mm. And I assume that you were following up on topics that had crossed your path while you were teaching the commerce business course. This paper um, probably, well, this, I have to say, I, I, I read the paper and I enjoyed it enormously. It was your first sortie, if you like, very witty, um, slightly irreverent, insightful, and it was on the notions of disputing agreements in a contract. So was this spurred on by a particular case that you came across while you were lecturing contract? Well, it was stirred up by a particular case I remembered learning all about when I was an undergrad and thinking was unfair. And I reflected on it further when I was in Canada. And um, the, as I recall, the rule was much the same there. And a lot of people thought the case was unfair. And it was thinking about the um, injustice that the rule caused which stimulated me to write the article. Um, and um, I admire your endurance reading it in preparation for this interview. And I'm not sure if I were writing it again today, I'd be quite so irreverent towards Lord Denning, who retrospect I much admire. Um, and I thought it was a very clever idea at the time because it found a way around what I thought was um, a harsh legal rule, which was if you signed it, you were bound by it, and that was the end of it. Uh, however obscure was the contractual document you'd signed, in the end it was all overtaken by legal events because we had the Unfair Contract Terms Act, um, which just simply rendered um, invalid all sorts of um, onerous terms in contracts and consumer contracts. So um, in the end, um, it, it was an idea which didn't, um, I don't think it really produced any final fruits. The courts never overruled the case as far as I know. Um, and then I rather moved away from the law of contract anyway and moved into criminal law and so forth. Okay. Yes. Well, you, you wrote very amusingly about the eavesdropper theory introduced by Lord Denning in Solon Butcher. And um, you criticised this because into earlier he had to be a jack of all trades and have encyclopedic knowledge. Yes. Well, yes, um, I did say that. And I thought it was very clever at the time. I'm not sure it was so clever when I look back on it years afterwards. Well, it was a very enjoyable paper to read. Well, and in retrospect, I thought I became a greater admirer of Lord Denning later on, I must say. I could, um, Lord Denning seemed to be a judge who could see his way through the legal, see his way through the legal jungle to what was a sensible solution at the end, very often, and expressed himself very clearly. Um, so I think I was more irreverent 
to Lord Denning in that article than I would have liked to have been were I starting again now. But, uh, Interesting. Um, Professor Spencer, you, you were appointed to a university assistant lecturer in 1973, mm. as you mentioned. Mm. Uh, what, what did this entail? Doing, getting on and lecturing whatever they wanted you to do, basically. I think when you started then, the expectation was that you could teach anything which you'd learnt, essentially. Um, I was asked to teach contract initially, if I remember. Um, it meant, well, giving lectures and being on hand to take on other administrative jobs if the law faculty wanted you to do so. Um, the, I noticed that I couldn't see any publications during this period, so I assume that you would have been overwhelmed with the teaching responsibilities. I was working on various things. Um, academic life was not demanding in those days, and there was an expectation that once you'd got a faculty post, you could keep it, and um, you didn't wasn't required of you to keep publishing things whether you had anything to say or not. Um, Rosie and I had got married in 1972 and we had a house which needed work and I enjoy being a handyman. I spent my vacations um, doing extensive works in the house including building a new staircase with the help and direction of our next door neighbor's friend who was a professional carpenter. Nobody checked up on you, nobody minded. We hadn't started calling the long vacation the research period as we've now renamed it. And I was content to have the liberty that um, academic life then gave you. I'd got involved in Clark and Linzel and so I put a lot of academic work into keeping up to date the chapters I was doing with that. I was in, brought in, I, I had translated, um, there's a thing called the, um, I can't remember the full title of it, but it's something like the Universal Encyclopedia of Comparative Law, which is a German project, but uh, published in English. And uh, um, somebody in Belgium had written a chapter on an aspect of the law of tort in that, and I translated that. So I was I was busy with academic things, but not writing original articles much at that point. I suppose looking back on it, I was much involved in the law of tort, and I, if I look at the case notes I wrote back then, quite a lot of them were about the law of tort rather than about criminal justice matters. And um, some of the Cambridge, when I did start publishing articles in the Cambridge Law Journal and so on, they were about aspects of the law of tort, like one on public nuisance and um, one about Rylands and Fletcher and strict liability for motor cars and so on. Right. So in 1976, you were promoted to a university lecturer. Was this a natural progression or were there specific circumstances? The hope and expectation was that 
if you had got as far as being an assistant lecturer, you would then be promoted to university lecturer. It wasn't automatic. And if you'd um, not been in the least academically productive, and the word had got around you were a bad lecturer, and the word had got around that you were an awkward colleague, then you might have had your assistant lectureship um, extended and told it wasn't likely to be, you weren't likely to be moved up to a, to lecturer. But it was pretty much an expected progression at that point. Right. So at this point, it was probably at this point that you moved, began to move seriously to criminal law. Yes, I taught criminal, I'd supervised criminal law all the, ever since I started as a junior fellow at Selwyn. And it was about then that I got to know Glanville Williams personally, and, and he was pushing me in that direction and got me in, there was a SPTL, so called the Society of Legal Scholars now, it then had long and complicated name, and, and it had a criminal law group of which he was part, and John Smith were part, and Tony Smith was part, I think, as well, and um, he started going to meetings of that with them and got much more, much more closely involved in uh, criminal law at that point. It was at this point that you contributed to a fish grift for Professor Smith on his retirement and uh, your, this was your first book chapter, presumably, was your co-author his son? Sorry, was? Was the co-author of this chapter, uh, Peter Smith, was he the son of Professor Smith? Just a coincidence of name, I think. But to go back a step, I think the first first trip chapter that I wrote was actually in one for Glanville Williams himself when he retired oh. in... Um, 1978, I think, and Peter Glazebrook put that together, and I I wrote a chapter about um, criminal libel, the history of pros prosecutions of the newspapers for criminal libel. I got into that earlier on. Um, through one of one of the earlier things I'd written on criminal law had been about the law of criminal libel because there'd been a resurrection of prosecutions for it. And um, through that, I'd realized that it had a colorful history and there'd been a lot of, it had been much used against newspapers at one point. And I did a lot of research and I got, I think I got a grant from um, a faculty fund to hire a student, Stephen Troman's, now Stephen Troman's QC, eminent counsel at the bar, to go to the uh, university library and look up large numbers of reported prosecutions in the archive volumes of the Times newspaper. And uh, that was an article that I wrote, which was again, I mean, partly the law of tort, because criminal libel was a criminal version of what was mainly the tort of defamation. And I think I was lecturing on the tort of defamation at that point in the tort course. That was the first, that was the first uh, history article I wrote. 
and then the John Smith one followed on from that. Right. So um, apparently Professor Smith's case notes in the Criminal Law Review were known for their witty, engaging style, which is very much like your style as well. Do you think that you were influenced by him? I know I liked John Smith's case notes in the Criminal Law Review. I don't remember ever consciously thinking, that's nice, I'm copying that. But certainly the clarity of them was something which I admired at the time and thought that's the way to write notes about cases. Um, early on, um, there were legal writers whom, contemporary writers whose style I liked because they were clear and they were incisive and they could point out what the essence of a particular problem was. Um, Glanville Williams, obviously, Tony Weir, particularly, um, John Smith as well. It always seemed to me that a lot of law is not as complicated as lawyers like to make it. And one of the reasons that I and other people like Lord Denning was that he could see his way through the problem, to what was through all the case law, to what was the essence of the problem. And in legal writing, I always thought, I want to make this accessible, not just to lawyers who specialize in a field, but make it understandable to any intelligent lay person who wants to know about it. And um, Rosie, my wife, um, was a research scientist, so she didn't have a legal background, and I used to get her to read my case notes. And if she couldn't understand them, then I'd have another go. I wanted to make them clear, not just to legal colleagues who and studied, studied, studied this particular area, but made them clear to anybody who was coming to it. And that's what I've always tried to do. And for a time, I got into writing articles in the Times newspaper about legal issues. Um, and similarly, they were trying to explain a legal problem in a way that everybody could grasp. It often seemed to me the longer the longer a legal article is, the less anybody's likely to read it and the less it's likely to have any influence. If you want, if you want to have an impact and cause a rule of law to be changed, you write something short, which people are going to read. And as the saying goes, you pile it high and sell it cheap. Um, I'm sad that there is increasingly a divorce between um, what academic lawyers are expected to do, which is keep churning out longer and longer articles for more and more specialized journals, all with international in the title, um, in order to score marks for the research assessment exercise or research excellence framework or whatever it's called, and less and less encouragement to write anything which anybody might read other than appointments committees or assessment boards for that. Yes. Very interesting indeed. And uh, to continue on that theme, I always thought that to have something to say 
it's better not to say anything. Um, happily, I was an academic during the period when there wasn't any compulsion on you to keep writing, except when you actually had some message you want to put across. And that's not so today. People have to keep writing whether they have anything to say or not, and whether anybody's going to read it or not. Um, I just took it for granted there was no point writing anything unless you actually had a message to put over. Uh, but uh, looking back on it, it was a luxury that I had of the time that I worked in that you could do that. Yes. This was a, a very fruitful period for you from 1976 to 91. 1990 was a particularly busy year, the year in which you published your book on children's evidence, which we'll come to at a later stage. Um, but I wonder whether you could say something about the sabbatical to Paris in 1990 to 91. Yes. Can I just say before you do, Professor Spencer, that your knowledge and your affinity for continental and especially French law are very well known in the faculty, uh, as well as the establishment of the Erasmus Exchange Programme and the dual matrix with Paris too. The, there was a long-standing arrangement with, with dating from when there was just one single and entire University of Paris that their law faculty got somebody from the English-speaking world to give a course or more than one course in the Anglo-American law of contract to their equivalent of an LLM course. And this had started years back and a number of Cambridge people had gone, including Basil Marcosinis, who was at Cambridge then, and Brian Napier. And I think it was Basil Marcosinis who suggested to Paris, inviting me, uh, and I was hesitant about it, but those who'd been encouraged me to go, and I did. So I reverted to teaching the law of contract um, to a class of French students. They were not French undergraduates, they were French graduates doing a fourth year course equivalent of our LLM. And it was selective at that stage, not like French undergrads courses where everybody can go and then they have a massacre at the end of the year and you have a lecture course, a room full of hundreds and hundreds of people. It was a smallish class as you had in Cambridge. And I did. And I had to lecture in French. And at the end of my first attempt to do that, um, one of the nice students came up and said, um, you know, I think we all have English. I think you might, if you'd find it easier to lecture to us in English, um, why don't you do that? I'm sure we'd understand. And I went to speak to my minder at the University of Paris one. And I said to him, um, they've suggested that I lecture in English. And he said, En France, il faut enseigner en français, monsieur. 
il faut avoir une dérogation du ministère de l'Éducation nationale. Allez-y. So, with a suitably reprimanded, I just kept going and stumbled along, and eventually, having done it for a while, it started to come more easily, and the point arrived when I could lecture from a page of notes in French, as I would in English, I'd have to take longer to prepare because I'd have to foresee words which I didn't know the French for and check them out. So it was by doing it for a year that I ended up um, able to lecture in French without any terror. But it was um, up an uphill struggle and um, I think um, my initial lectures would have been painful for the students to listen to. It's very interesting. And it's it's an interest that you've maintained ever since. Yes. Um, I'd always enjoyed French at school. I'd liked, I got on well with the lady who taught us French, <coughs> who taught us in the sixth form, who's still alive at great old age now, and I'm still in touch with. And I'd so I'd always remained, always liked the French language and been interested in it. When I was in Paris, I made contact with a number of, of French lawyers who were interested in um, interested in English law and wanted to know all about it. There was a big debate going on in France about reforming French criminal procedure at that time, and there was an interest in finding out about. Um, Anglo-Saxon Anglo criminal procedure. I mean, they somehow put together the uh, United States of America and uh, British Isles as les Anglo-Saxons. There was a lot of difference between them. So often invited to give lectures to groups of French magistrats about in French about um, English or. English and American criminal procedure and how it differs. And that went on for a while and that continued after I went back from Paris. And yes, I made many friends there and it was as a result of that that I ended up um, being used by the faculty to set up the first links of the Erasmus program. And that led to the Dublin program later on. Also in well in still on the in the year of 1990, um, which I referred to earlier, it was at this time that you uh, were on the Calcut committee, and I wonder if you could say something about that. That was that was a committee that was set up. I think instrumental in setting it up was the then Lord Chancellor, Lord Mackay, I think. And it was to look into the question of invasions of privacy and outrageous behaviour by the, by the press. Um, particularly the down market press, the tabloid press. I'd well, I'd always averted my eyes from the tabloid newspapers. We used to take them in the senior combination room at Selwyn 
in those days. I think we stopped eventually because people didn't like them and didn't read them. And it was a revelation to me how dreadful they were and some of the invasive things that they and abusive things that they did. And um, we struggled and struggled. And there was a division of opinion on the Calcutta Committee. Um, I can't remember how many of us were on it, but the, the driving forces were David Calcutt, who was the chairman of it, and the two powerful people on opposite sides of the debate that I remember, but David Eady QC, who was uh, at the libel and privacy bar and later became a judge, now retired, and Simon Jenkins, um, journalist, polymath, writer about everything, um, and he was editor of the Times for a, time, for a while, uh, shortly after that. And they, well, to say they clashed would imply um, they were personally at each other's throats. They weren't, but they philosophically different views on how one should proceed. In the end, we produced a report which um, recommended the creation of the um, Press Complaints Commission, I think it was, as a, yet another attempt to try and for, to get the industry to regulate what happens and, and ensure proper standards of behaviour. And did it make any difference? No, very little. And then David Calcutt, a report said, give the newspaper, give the newspaper another chance to try and set up a method of regulation to avoid the worst abuses. And then he later produced a follow-up report on his own, which said, well, it hasn't worked, has it? There should be legislation about it. And there wasn't any, of course. And then years later, we had um, Sir Brian Leveson brought in to produce the Leveson report, the most weighty report, and David Cameron couldn't wait to disown that when he was Prime Minister, so we continue to have the problem of um, um, a tabloids press which invades people's privacy and um, is one of the problems I think that we have in this country. So I don't regard my my period on the Calcutta Committee as one of the successful endeavours in my life. Interesting, but it wasn't successful. Very. Thank you, Professor Spencer. Before we conclude, is there anything that you'd like to add where I might perhaps have overlooked some aspect of your career? Maybe something you want to add in relation to the double matrix or... In any case, we can always yep. follow up. I was, I was proud of having set up the, having set up or having been instrumental in setting up the Erasmus program, and which we started with the University of Poitiers, and then it was outside the Erasmus framework initially because. The message we had from the university was that with a collegiate university, you can't run within the Erasmus scheme. But then a way was found and the scheme was expanded. And um, then I handed over running it to uh, to John Bell and 
it ended up and still continues, I think, with links with not only Poitiers, but Utrecht and Regensburg and um, one of the universities in Madrid. What's going to happen to it with Brexit, I don't know and nobody knows. Alas, alas. Um, but I, I felt it was, a, was helping to stitch together the more united Europe in the future. And it was one of the things that made me very sad about Brexit is I could see all that crumbling. The Double Retries um, was a much more taxing venture. And as you know, the faculty eventually decided to close it down. And it's true, it did have some problems. Um, and I regret, obviously, that the faculty decided in the end not to continue with it. Um, it did. It did attract a number of extremely good students. And I am still in touch with two or three of the best students who went to Cambridge through that course. Only yesterday, I had a letter from um, a Frenchman who was part of the Dugretrie's course, who went back to Paris. And he now is the leading member of a cabinet d'avocat, which does criminal work in France, and probably one of the best known ones. And he wrote me such a nice letter, um, reflecting on his time at Cambridge and saying how grateful, grateful he was for it. And um, I was touched to get that letter. And I, so I think it was a worthwhile enterprise, even if it doesn't continue. So the two things I am proud of having done are setting up the Erasmus scheme and the Dublometries, even though the Dublometries doesn't survive. Thank you. Well, Professor Spencer, this might be a good time to break because we've been you've been engaging um, for well over an hour mm -hmm. and um, we can follow up with the remainder of your academic career in the next interview. Mm -hmm. So for now, I thank you most sincerely for a wonderful account, a lively, interesting account. I'm greatly looking forward to the next conversation, um, which hopefully we can arrange for some time in January. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Leslie. I am grateful to you for setting it up. Thank you. Bye-bye. So I should say farewell. Thank you.